Hey everyone, welcome back to Excuse Me While I Organize with Indira Washington and Hayes Taylor, a podcast centered around building solidarity and movements for liberation. Today's topic is one of the foundational pillars of systemic racism in the United States, which affects everyone from the moment they start school. This is the first episode in our series regarding white supremacy in education, which reaches far beyond just the curriculum that ingrains that white is right into impressional minds and erases black and brown achievement. White supremacy in education also deals with, but is not limited to who gets funding within schools, which schools within districts get funding, who's put into gifted classes, the beginning of the carceral state, and reinforcing racial slash class barriers. To introduce the topic, we will be speaking with two panelists today. Our first panelist is Zachary London, who is a UGA alum, an educator at Kalima Montessori, an activist and content creator. Our next panelist is Musa Subramaniam, who's a Vanderbilt University student and a YDSA member. first question I want to ask you guys is what your educational backgrounds are and then how do you currently interact with the education system? Yeah okay so uh, my educational background personally uh, went to private schools when I was younger transitioned into public school when I was in elementary and noticed a stark difference uh, like when I was in private school I was actually recommended to like skip up two grades but then as soon as I went to public school then it would I was told that I wasn't mature enough to skip those grades and basically at that time period I was like the only black kid in the classroom and as time went on you go through middle school and high school and then there's more people who look, look like me and more diversity in the classrooms but still predominantly a white school. Went to a junior college for a little bit called Georgia Highlands College. Then I transferred to UGA and I got a, my educational degree in early childhood education. And now I'm teaching at a private school. What type of private school do you teach at? Zach? It's called Kalima Montessori, where at this school is totally different than the public schools that I was in where I like I don't necessarily have to be the disciplinary in the classroom all the time uh, like my students are able to like lay on a couch like we have a couch in my classroom <laughs> don't have to necessarily tell them like when and when they can and when they can't go to the restroom uh, I teach by the way I teach like first through 10th grade so like lower levels like first through fifth then sixth and tenth is with me for the most part of the day. And I love it, to be honest with you, because it's like I am actually teaching humans, not oppressed people for the most part. And I don't have to play the role of oppressor in the classroom anymore. And based on what you told me about your experience as a public school teacher in Clark County, your role in the classroom is completely different. Correct. Yeah. Like I would get in trouble if I didn't basically discipline a student. Like They couldn't lay on the ground and do their work. Like if the student wanted to, like if they needed to dance while they was working or something like I had to, like, nah, you need to sit down. So it's a total different environment and I'm just enjoying it so far. I am not an educator. I've just been a student my whole life. But, you know, I've been to public schools all through high school 
school and I went to, I was zoned to Poplar Grove School, which is in Franklin. And the school literally opposite the street was the school where up until my eighth grade year where they restricted every, um, was pretty much the school with the highest amounts of free and subsidized lunches. All the sort of immigrant neighborhoods were all zoned there. My school was very white. I think I had like a hundred kids in my, in my class, in my grade, and like less than 10 of us were people of color in any way. So that was kind of my educational experience there. High school, I think when I came in, Franklin was like, I don't know, something like 90 something percent white. And again, that changed for the incoming freshman class my senior year. But, you know, obviously that didn't change anything, any of my experiences in my classes. Now I'm at Vanderbilt, which is a far more diverse place, but uh, obviously not the most diverse spot, whether you're talking about racial diversity or uh, income diversity or anything like that. But definitely far far different than, than Franklin. So I'm a history student here at Vanderbilt and yeah. Okay, so the follow-up question to that, and this can be either from like a system-wide or like an individual-based thing, so no pressure to like highlight trauma, that's not what we're asking for, but on a system-based, we want to know like, what were some of the biggest manifestations of white supremacy you've seen or experienced in either the school systems you're currently in or in your past? If I had to choose one, I'd probably say my middle school experiences, just because I had one Black teacher in my entire time at, at Papa Grove, and that was the only person of color, the only non-white person who ever taught me in any capacity. Our administrators, we had a Black vice principal my eighth grade year, my last year there. I mean, if you look at disciplinary sheets, I mean, just like look at the name on the people who were like at lunch detention every day definitely weren't like you know your johns your pauls your joshes like i mean i don't want to like throw anyone's name out there but you know like jacob yusuf or you know musa subramanian like all the names that were non-white were the only names on all the lists for lunch detention after school detention everything like that and that was consistent and you know obviously i'm sure zach can attest to this you know far better than i can but you know just from seeing people like that firsthand you know you get sort of disenfranchised from the class and the kids who are quote unquote acting out or tagged for acting out are always the non-white kids. I remember one time specifically I was in science class and our desks were faced, you know, perpendicular to the board. So naturally she was talking at the front and I, I turned around in my desk and this white kid right behind me did the exact same thing. I got sent to detention because I wasn't sit sitting forward at my desk. I wouldn't think to do that to anyone to like send them to detention for like not facing their desk for literally facing me at the, at the front as a teacher. But I mean, that was just kind of the reality of every day where like you get sent for just nothing absolutely so that was just kind of the reality of that experience and there was no reprieve for that there was no way to ever talk about that no parents could come in and ever do anything other than maybe send their kid to a private school which you know most of us couldn't afford so there's white educators who have this perception of people of color and they're forcing those perceptions every single day the biggest manifestation so for me personally, man, I see it every day. The biggest manifestation of white supremacy that I've actually seen is essentially just black capitalism. Overall, it's kind of kind of antithetical for any black person or African person or African descent descendant to be pro-capitalism when that is essentially what disenfranchised you from the very beginning. So in my personal opinion, just to hit an overall nail on the head, I feel as though that's that's an easy sign right there that like white supremacy is 
basically taking over the mind of the people that really don't benefit from it. And so by that, are you talking about like the narrative that's pushed if you try hard enough in the system, regardless of your color, you can come up? Is that kind of what you're referring to? For the most part, yeah. So I want to hone in on a point that you brought up earlier, Zach. You were talking about the difference you felt between private and public school. And I wanted to ask, like based on my own experiences, I started off at a Waldorf school, which is pretty similar to Montessori. And obviously transitioning to the real world was different, but I was quickly labeled gifted, which is a very different experience. So I wanted to ask you both, how does labeling students gifted versus non-gifted affect their experience or how did it affect yours? Personally, I feel as though that is not necessarily beneficial because I feel like every student is actually gifted in their own way. And that's why I actually like the Montessori aspect because I actually get to let kids explore what their gift is, like explore what they're actually interested in. Every every single day, I'm asking my students, like, what exactly is your passion? Like, don't make money your actual goal. Even, even though they have an entrepreneur class and they're learning how to handle money and uh, they even learn, they're even learning about stocks currently. However, I want them to actually chase their passions because I see how the money is gonna come eventually, but the money shouldn't necessarily be your goal. Like the money's not your purpose. Like chase what your pur- your purpose is, chase what your passion is. And it doesn't necessarily seem as though that's what's given in public school because I personally was never asked, what's my passion? And it was very interesting for me when I was young because at first I was labeled as gifted. But as soon as I got to a, the public school and I, I told them I didn't want to take those tests to be put in those classes because I felt as though I was being taken away from my friends. So I didn't want to be othered back then, in a sense. As soon as I wasn't in those classes, then I was just another student. Like I wasn't necessarily uh, somebody who received quote unquote privileges that the gifted students did get receive. And I don't necessarily think it helps. And even in my, I think one of my very first classes at UGA, one of my very, very first educational classes was actually bringing up the point that tracking students that way don't necessarily help them uh, for their actual success in life. Like it's not even a, a sign of whether or not they're going to be successful or not. So it's kind of like, why exactly do we do that? I guess it, that's classist in itself right there at an early age. Yeah, I mean, in my experience, that's sort of been a way to re-entrench those systems of segregation um, in schools and white supremacy. Um, I was labeled gifted throughout middle school, and I definitely know that, I mean, I was the only non-white person within that space out of like, I think five or 10 in my in my grade. And that definitely helped me, even though I was being disciplined almost as much as any of the other kids, that definitely helped me continue to stay on a particular educational track. And have you know advantages in taking certain like you know advanced math classes early or whatever which I mean honestly I wasn't particularly more qualified to do than anyone else in the class in the grade but definitely kept me sort of moving forward along this sort of path that the education system wants you to go on in ways that other people of color any other person of color really um, wasn't being pushed towards and I think in high school as well I mean Hayes can probably attest to this as well at Franklin, where there's, you know, the IB program, which the IB program happened to be more diverse, I think, on in general than the rest of the the school. But I mean, probably for combining AP IB programs, that's, you know, it's a very white system. And oftentimes, people are being pushed into those systems as a way basically of hiding the amount of funds that you're giving to those programs, because, you know, ultimately, that's where funds are being allocated more than anything else. 
And so it seems to me, and, and Zach was also talking about tracking um, from talking to people at Vanderbilt as well. This isn't any sort of systemic analysis, of course, but I mean, tracking seems to be another way that a lot of people were sort of pushed into these exclusive spaces within schools. So, you know, there might be a particular amount of funding for the school that, you know, the school might be diverse, the school might have as much funding as a very white school down the road. But when you actually look at which students are being quote unquote invested in which students are actually getting the educational opportunities and the resources, even within those schools, you can see dramatic differences. And certainly my own experience, I think attests to that. Going off of kind of the, the funding part and tracking different students, I wanted to ask you all about, and also about like segregation. So according to the Atlantic, the public school system is more segregated today than it was in the 1960s. Do you guys think that desegregation of schools is a step toward dismantling white supremacy in education? Or do you think that kind of ignores the problem holistically? I think that desegregation would in part give access to students of color more broadly, but then as Musa was saying, we can see there, there are tactics to funnel the, those resources within more diverse spaces. The more that I've read of quote unquote revolutionary works and just being a, a black person and just diving into more works that are centered towards black people, most of the work that I've read always starts off with talking about how our education should always be centered around self-determination. Like anything around, anything that's our education should be trying to help out whatever situation we're in or the environment, how we can use what's in our environment or like just whatever can help our progression as a people. And when, I don't think a lot of people know that Brown versus Board of Education had two cases actually, uh, where the first one, they kind of ruled like, oh yeah, you guys are right. Like this was wrong, but they didn't necessarily have a way, like an answer of like what to do next. So the second time they came around and they actually came up with how they were going to integrate the schools and whatnot. And overall, later on, this kind of touched where the black power movement came in. And this was essentially also around just the, like the point of self-determination. And these students and, and youthful individuals were also pointing out the fact that our education doesn't necessarily benefit us. Like, I don't know anything about myself. Like, where's Black history? Like, where are we in, in this curriculum and whatnot? And I'm, I'm pretty sure most other demographics can also attest to this as well in our education system. But it seemed as though the more multicultural we try to become, the more the non-white demographics just became a side story in the education system in a sense like it it was more so something that would benefit white society and continue white progression and white supremacy and racism versus actually helping where the different demographics within the united states so i personally i i the segregation has always really been there no matter if you threw in something about another non-white individual that was a leader in the past or not. It wasn't anything that really helped the people that that person, for instance, like Martin Luther King Jr. Most people don't even know what he actually really was talking about. Most people only know his I have a dream speech. And most like people don't actually know that he actually was moving into the poor people's campaign or he was moving into like anti-Vietnam war. Like at first he was cool with Zionism, but then once he started realizing what exactly it was, he kind of started backtracking that. And it's kind of hard to follow your leaders when your oppressor is actually controlling the narrative around who your leaders are. 
So I personally don't necessarily know if integration really actually helped. I feel as though it just pushed through a system to continue the system, if that makes sense. Well, I wanted to actually go back to one of the points you made, Musa, about the IB program being more diverse. Yeah. I noticed within my county, um, instead of focusing on students of color within majority white spaces, they instead pushed the IB programs in the majority people of color schools, specifically the black schools, which was really interesting to see. That's where you saw the most progress because they didn't know what to do with the black kids in the white schools. They were kind of just like, okay, this is tough. Don't know what to tell you, but we see this area that we can target and it's way easier to do that. So I think that um, kind of what London was saying, it's interesting to see the impact in systems that are slightly less segregated or slightly less integrated and how that can affect your education, even in a positive way. Because I didn't have access to an IP program at all. There was nothing like that for my school at all. Can so, I actually ask Musa something? Yeah, sure. Okay. So as far as like uh, with, with your educational back, like did you actually see anything in this in your education that truly really benefited you or like actually or just your demographic as a person of color? I mean I think it, it cultivated my interest in particular things but the way I expressed them is very different like I think for instance that our American history was actually like extremely stellar when compared to the way American history is typically thought, taught in high schools but you know looking back on that there's also a lot of problems with the way it's framed and the focus of it and you know things like that i don't know I, I think one thing i would say is that the experience of being in a white school i think actually pushed me pushed me away from medicine when i was when i was younger i just remember my chemistry teacher sort of always disciplining me for like talking in class pointing me out in particular and then also one time said that like i shouldn't continue in chemistry and i don't know if i would have continued in medicine but you know that definitely was something that sort of pushed me away from that STEM track. So I guess in some ways, good and bad, it definitely shaped my interests in the long term. But I mean, I don't think I would say anything I learned in high school was particularly a foundation for, you know, my ideas or the person that I am today. I think like, you know, obviously your experience shapes you in some way, but I wouldn't say I learned anything from the curriculum that really made me interested in, in certain things in the light that I do now, the light that I view it now. I do want to interject a little bit regarding the IB program and the way history was taught in it. Even though I can't speak to Moose's experience or any other person of color in the program, I do think the way we were taught about movements was super unique. Um, for example, when we read The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, we weren't looking at it from the perspective of one person being the savior of some movement. It was a collective, which I don't think is a perspective that was available at any other program in the United States. A collective. You said what? I said more than just about any other school. Yeah, no, no, exactly. Yeah, I think IB is pretty interesting because it's all about creating that global worldview <laughs> um, versus just the American exceptionalism, at least from my understanding of it. I, an IB curriculum. So from from my perspective so far, I'm actually still, I'm kind of actually learning along with my students. 
it's like this isn't the same exact exact humanities class that I was taught like what you just now said was exactly my my history with uh civil rights like I, I literally Black History Month was literally just MLK, Harriet Tubman, Frederick, like that was pretty much it. And I barely remember anything besides that. So um, I'm intrigued on what y'all experience was with IB because from from my perspective, I feel like it's trying to create that that idea that you're not just stuck in whatever country you're in or like you have a, a role in this earth and everybody else does. It wasn't until after I graduated high school that I even thought about six degrees of separation and how I myself impact people across the entire globe. Um, so like, I, I love that, to be honest. I really think that plays into the whole gifted privilege thing, because I definitely only got that perspective from my AP teachers. And they were also the only teachers that seemed like they cared enough to ever push that out of us or dare to ask us another question. I wonder a lot about how that affects kids just because there's such a small group of people who get to get their minds opened, you know? Definitely. Speaking of that, um, I know one of the biggest issues, one of the things that is cited the most often when talking about what kids get to learn is funding. So since property taxes and locally raised taxes are such a big thing. I know in my neighborhood, we weren't even zoned to have apartments. So that definitely pushed certain kids out of the neighborhood and played into the whole idea of self-segregation. So how do you think we should change the way that schools are funded or how kids get access to these education? So I actually have a soror, a sister that she's in Virginia and she's getting her master's um, she's in a master's program. It's like curriculum development. I can't remember exactly what it is, but she's she was telling me about. And we have we were having a conversation. And shout out to Courtney because she's gonna listen to it. So uh, she was actually talking to me about how we know that the more federal funding a school is getting, then that's usually a school where uh, students aren't necessarily meeting those standardized test scores. Whereas if you're getting more local funding, then that means you're getting beefed up by that where those students are meeting the test uh, test scores. So she was saying how if school has lo- low local funds, that means that they're struggling and will most likely have a high number of students with free or reduced lunch, which signals poverty and disability within the school and the system. And we already know that the students that have parents that are able to like leave those areas, like they're definitely going to dip. <laughs> like, so then those, that money that is involved in property taxes that goes towards the school is definitely not going to be there. So we we're talking about how the real issue with federal funding is that it's given the stipulations and cannot be spent in any kind of way. So the ways in which it must be spent normally do nothing to assist students with disabilities or troubles at home, which make it difficult for them to actually learn. And it often goes towards new academic programs, which, again, don't really reflect them and don't really take into consideration the lack of context that our students have for their materials. And I know personally in my hometown, we were definitely very like low income because at one point when I was in middle school, we were the second fastest growing county in the entire nation. Um, it was very, very cheap. 
So we were basically like guinea pigs. Like I remember my teachers actually telling us like, oh, you guys are the guinea pigs. Like you the guys that are in sixth grade currently and the ones that are in kindergarten are about to be the guinea pigs for this next curriculum that's coming in. And I remember we were all sitting there looking at each other like, wait, so we're not really gonna know if this curriculum really works until we graduate or until those kids that were in kindergarten come up and graduate. It's very interesting because it just seems as though like if you are getting low funding from local, from local funding, then you're, you're kind of trapped. You're not gonna be able to get all those opportunities and, and whatnot. And you don't really get that global view or get asked like, what are your thoughts or how to actually, how to actually think in general? Like you're just taught what to think. And that's really like a main issue. Equity is not necessarily a goal. It's just like, what can I pump out? So I know that um, one of the stipulations for federal funding specifically for the free and reduced lunch program is that the schools have to buy the cheapest possible option, even with the healthy lunch program. If there's like kids can get carrots and a sandwich and a bag of chips and this, they still have to forego that option for the grade D stuff. That's definitely Athens. That's definitely Athens, Clark County. (laughs) So how do you think regulation around things like and subsidized lunch play into the educational process? Well, I mean, as we all know, health is wealth. Uh, that's uh, that famous quote they always say. And like you said, it, even the, the, the quote unquote healthiest lunch, because when I was there, they, they were still receiving, um, I forget the term for it, but they were still receiving the lunch that uh, Michelle Obama basically put in place. So I'm currently, I don't know what exactly they have because I'm about a year, two years removed from public school. But I don't necessarily know if it really helped with their educational process. Like, yeah, you're getting food, but it's not really anything that's truly nutritional. Like My students were still getting the, the cereal bars, which is nothing but sugar. If a student did have, but if you had ADHD, then and you're also kind of like hyped up on sugar and it's like I would have to find ways to get that energy out like gotta be active during class but at the same time I can't do that because if my administrator walks by and then kind of like why is this kid jumping around like I'm like they, they have all this in they kind of need to express it. they need to get it out you, like they only had 15 minutes of recess but their whole lunch is sugar so it's kind of kind of like where exactly were they supposed to get that energy out at where exactly can they get that fresh air to feel healthier and actually get that exercise and, and physical mental stimulation for those psychomotor skills and whatnot that helps with that development. Like where was that supposed to come from? Yeah, I know in at my high school, they really just ended up reducing the serving sizes, not really replacing things with healthier items. So that definitely impacted um, the food insecure kids a lot. Not only that, but like one in six kids in Atlanta is food insecure. So just seeing how placing restrictions on federal funding can impact people is pretty wild. Yeah, I, I'm almost to the point where... Like I kind of had a conversation, a, a small conversation with Hayes about this because I, I before the election, I got something in the mail for like just a vote for Biden, like some, some mail for him. 
and it was talking about his plans for edu- the education, like the public educational system. And in my opinion, I wasn't necessarily sure if his plan was gonna be beneficial. Cause again, like what may be beneficial for um, quote unquote America as a whole may not exactly be beneficial for certain demographics around the nation. It seems as though the more federal funding, the more the government's actually, like the national government's actually in your school system, then the less control you really have over the development of your students, the development of your community, basically at that point. I'm a big proponent for finding ways to become self-sustainable now, even though I haven't mastered it myself, but still trying to find those think tanks and people that are actually trying to do that. And uh, like I try to tell friends now, like, I'm like, you gotta, you kind of have to go to these school board meetings now. <laughs> like, you, you need to go to the town hall meetings. Like you kind of, you need to do this stuff because that's the only way you're going to make sure that the kids in, in your environment, your county or your city or whatever is actually going to receive something that's truly beneficial for them. And if you just have to be in those circles, like without that, then you're kind of giving their future away to somebody or some entity that you're not necessarily sure is truly there to help you. And statistics are showing that it's not. Sorry, I just wanted to bring Musa in on that topic because he said um, earlier in life, he went to a majority immigrant school. And I know I grew up really close to Buford Highway and one of the really big pushes for universal pre-K is it's completely inaccessible unless you have money because it is a lottery system. It's totally not guaranteed. And then of course the childcare aspect of it, because a lot of immigrants don't have the opportunity to work nine to five jobs. So I just wanted to see if he felt anything about that too. Of course, there are issues within the structure of an education system that has not been reformed in a hundred years. But how do you feel about something like universal pre-K based on your experience? I so I always went to a, a very white high, a very white school. Um, but I definitely know that for the students at my school who are on free reduced lunches, the students at the school across from me, um, which was majority immigrant um, and had a lot more free reduced lunches, uh, what Zach said was pretty much the experience there. I mean, honestly, I am not qualified really to speak on sort of universal pre-k stuff i don't have any any sort of understanding of that beyond just you know a couple articles i've read or anything so yeah i defer to zach on that are you guys on that your research i'll say you probably do know more than you think you do like you probably have seen something but i i would say statistics do show that students do a lot better when they do have a pre-k program like when they are hitting uh, educational strides earlier in life than hopping because you here you don't even have to go to kindergarten you can just skip the first grade but again like it, it's just everything face value seems as though it's something that you would want it's just the way that the curriculum or the the way that they organize it is something's missing like the the like it's kind of for instance if I don't want to, for me, I would love to go back to, to Africa at some point and be able to like build a school, contribute to something in some way. Uh, but I don't want to go back with the paternalistic attitude where I think I know everything just because I've 
gotten this education or I have this privilege where it's like, I can point out, oh, what exactly you need here, here and here and what to do. But unless I'm actually in that community with those people daily, actually conversing with them, dialoguing and actually knowing what exactly they need, then I might be giving them something that they don't necessarily need or isn't necessarily beneficial for them. And that's kind of the way I, I look at the federal funding aspect or just uh, the big government actually being involved with underprivileged schools. Like, I'm, not a, I'm not convinced that that's something that's really helpful. Like, how are you, someone that's in DC or someone that's like Betsy DeVos, who was over the educational program, never was in a public school, was pushing more for privatization of schools. How exactly was she supposed to relate to the majority of the students in the entire country when she's never been a teacher, never was in the public schools? Like, I, I, that seems like it was counterproductive. Right? I, I don't necessarily see how anybody could come into a community and help when you're not actually a part of that community. So is it the federal funding itself or like the stipulations or standards placed upon how you use the funding? That's a good point. You're definitely right on that. It's definitely the stipulations. <laughs> like, It's definitely that. I was going to say just uh, again, I'm, I'm coming from the perspective of being a black male uh, growing up in Georgia. And I know there's always a discussion in our community of HBCUs versus PWIs, like which one is quote unquote better or not. And to me, the only difference is the experience you get, um, who your professors are, who is around you and whatnot. I mean, there's most likely more, but overall, a lot of the HBCUs are now public. I mean, they are still getting that funding from the government. I mean, in the curriculum that might actually be something that a Booker T. Washington that actually was over to the Tuskegee Institute, something that was actually, he was trying to actually get people to see that, you know, this right here, working in agriculture and everything like this is what you need to be doing. Whereas we know W.B. Du Bois was the total opposite with the talented tenth, but he was actually trying to do something that was really actually benefiting the people and giving them a curriculum that could actually help them because he knew what Southern black folks was actually around, what their environment was. And he's like, I'm not able to, like, I'm not gonna be somebody who's gonna be able to pull them to a Howard or a Fisk or a Hampton and give them this uh, more quote unquote progressive curriculum when that's not necessarily what their environment is required of them. Um, so like, now that I know that most HBCUs are government funded or public now, then their curriculum is still gonna be the same exact thing that you're gonna get at a PWI for the most part. So is kind of like, that's not necessarily, what do I wanna say here? <laughs> it's not necessarily a, a, a full difference of what's really beneficial then at the end of the day, intrinsically, when we're talking about the curriculum. So stipulations play a, a big part in, in my mind where it doesn't matter where you go because, again, if I'm touching back on that white supremacy, it's everywhere. <laughs> so you're going you're gonna to have to deal with it no matter what school you go to. That's true. I definitely think as we've 
integrated, the Black experience has also changed a lot. So the debate isn't really as much of a debate anymore because the Black experience has shifted in so many ways and expanded that it's just not like every kid won't feel more at home at an HBCU or at PWI. But of course, I have like 87 points that I could go off on that you just said, and we're out of time. So. Well, Musa and Zach, we really appreciate um, you guys being on here. We'll link both your socials in the, uh, in the description below. Zach, other than that, where can people find you? All right. So I'm on YouTube as The Blackademic, T H E, Blackademic. Uh, I'm on Instagram and Twitter at The Black Academic, which is D A Black Academic. And if y'all want, check out our school, Kalima Montessori, where. We're there to actually help kids find their passion and have a curriculum or education that's truly something that they desire. Uh, I mean, I guess you could find me at, at Musa Super Mario on Twitter. <laughs> I don't know if you are so inclined to follow me. This is my name. <laughs> Word, y'all. Well, we appreciate you guys uh, coming on and we'll talk to you guys again soon. I appreciate you having me. This has been yet another episode of Excuse Me While I Organize, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Go check us out on Organize Podcast on Twitter and Instagram.